Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, December 10th, day 65 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our editor, David Horvitz. Hi, David, and Hanukkah Sameach. Hey, Amanda. Chag Sameach. We are just over two months to the war, so I've asked David to join me in an overview discussion on how the war is going for Israel so far, what we see happening in the north with Hezbollah, and who are still Israel's partners and where is there some friction in in our relationships. Finally, we're going to talk about what is the mood of this nation 65 days on, all this and more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. As of this morning, 97 soldiers have fallen during the ground invasion in Gaza. And at the same time, the IDF is sending signals that the war is going very well and that forces are pushing into all parts of the Strip, that Hamas operatives are increasingly surrendering. So how should we understand these messages out of the IDF? Well, you know, it's a very tall order um, to try and penetrate the fog of war and uh, get a, a, a clear sense of how things are going um, and I'm approaching it with lots of humility and listeners should know that it, uh, for a start, the people who are in the heart of the war often know the least about it. The people who are prosecuting the war uh, from on high um, can often um, not necessarily have the most accurate sense of what is going on on the ground and journalists by definition, in, in this kind of conflict, the Times of Israel's military uh, uh, correspondent, the indefatigable uh, Emmanuel Fabian, has been inside Gaza several times. But nobody really uh, um, is, is covering the war from inside Gaza in an ongoing and independent way. So lots of caveats about what we try to say. Um, you mentioned the death toll. I think um, the IDF, um, if... They spoke with absolute candor about this, would say that the losses are, of course, terrible and that they are um, lower than they might have anticipated. Certainly when in in previous years, the idea of a a major ground offensive in Gaza was discussed, um, it was rejected among other reasons because there was um, the realization that you would be tackling Hamas in its tunnels uh, in its booby-trapped uh, buildings uh, in home territory, and that that was exactly what Hamas wanted to happen, and the death toll would be uh, untenable, I suppose. Uh, and I think what's what's different, of course, now is October the 7th, and things that were unthinkable and untenable in terms of tackling Hamas 
and now uh, were seen uh, in in the declaration of war and the, the the nature of the conflict. They were seen as not merely not untenable, but rather essential. That um, even at a, a, a terrible price, Israel had to ensure that Hamas would not be able to do October the seventh again. Uh, that other enemies would be deterred and that people would be able to go back and live um, somewhere close to Gaza, which by an American standard, for example, by the way, would mean anywhere in Israel. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, most especially uh, in those areas that were uh, subject to Hamas's slaughter. So a high death toll among Israeli troops, um, considerable devastation in Gaza, uh, immense hostility to Israel, in some cases seized upon by anti-Semites, in some cases reasonable people making making uh, um, um, assessments based on less good and 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 more uh, uh, accurate senses of what's going on. I mean, this is a very fraught conflict. Uh, but yes, to come back to the beginning of of your question, I think the IDF would say that the war is proceeding. Uh, as expected. Um, but I also think one shouldn't get carried away about how well or not it's going. I mean, endlessly, we have been told in recent weeks um, by um, commanders and generals and and uh, some uh, analysts that Israel has captured northern Gaza. Israel has not completely captured northern Gaza. Um, there are um, ha- Hamas command centers that... Um, for example, the National Security Advisor Tahir Negbi said last night um, are still facing uh, the IDF. In, in, in other words, in Jabalia and Sajaia, which are two Hamas strongholds in northern Gaza, the military has has taken control of large areas, but it has yet to um, really tackle the uh, the central command centers in both of those areas. The army has expanded the ground operation, as as everybody knows, into the south. It, is, it has certainly not got ground forces operating throughout Gaza. Uh, for uh, one, one proof of that, of course, is that rockets continue to be fired at Israel, including uh, at central Israel. Uh, those rockets are being fired from central and southern Gaza areas where the IDF is not in full control. Uh, we've seen photographs um, of and some video footage of dozens, uh, maybe a, f- a few hundred by this point, of men um, who have apparently surrendered. Um, controversial photographs because they have been stripped uh, um, you know, of, of much of their clothing, not all of their clothing, um, which the army would explain, does explain, as being because they may be Hamas operatives and they may have weapons and bombs and all the, all the things that Israel has had to deal with over the years. Uh, some of them, according to the army, indeed are Hamas uh, gunmen and others of them are not, and some have been released. Uh, what we haven't seen, and we've we've heard of lots of Hamas battalion commanders and senior figures uh, who have been killed, uh, we haven't seen the, the 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 prominent publicly known leaders of Hamas in Gaza surrendering or being killed or had any um, concrete information about them. There are, there have been reports that Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of Hamas in Gaza, um, escaped northern Gaza in some kind of humanitarian convoy, uh, escaped Gaza City. It, it, according to some, he is believed to be in Khan Yunis, where a lot of the focus of the military uh, operation is now. According to others, he's long gone from Khan Yunis as well. Um, 
And uh, of course, there are uh, approximately 140 hostages still being held, some of whom we understand are being moved around uh, by their Hamas captors, perhaps even by the, uh, the most senior figures in Hamas uh, to serve as human shields. So again, um, a, a mixed picture, the ground offensive proceeding probably as well as the IDF could have hoped with the loss of life. Uh, with all kinds of other uh, consequences, including uh, uh, the perception of Israel internationally uh, and so on, in a, in a war that Israelis, I would say, not necessarily universally, but near universally, in a, in a war including the ground uh, offensive that almost all Israelis believe to be necessary for the, the, the sustainability of this country. A lot to unpack there. Let's talk a little bit about the United States, our relationship with the United States, without the backing of the United States, without the arms from the United States, Israel would not be able to continue with this war. Of course, one of the major uh, points of friction are over the casualties of what the casualties in Gaza, obviously, the civilian casualties. And of course, Israel, we've talked about this a lot, it has uh, done all all sorts of manipulations, including uh, evacuation corridors, a map that is interactive and shows people where they can safely stay while certain parts of, especially the southern part of Gaza, are being uh, attacked. But even the timeline of the war seems to have a little bit of a different answer, depending upon which nation you are asking. So Israeli officials have been saying something more along the lines of six to eight weeks for this first phase of the war, but from the Americans, we're hearing uh, slightly different numbers. What do you know about this, David? So again, Amanda, you're asking you know big questions, and and before I begin to try to answer, let's again make the caveat: um, we're not always in the rooms um, where these issues are discussed, and I don't necessarily think there is always one answer to many of these questions. But you know, in in terms of what we can reasonably try to say, um, the United States broadly speaking and demonstrably, um, supports Israel's effort to destroy Hamas. Its uh, uh, endorsement of that goal uh, is repeatedly and publicly um, made by President Biden. Uh, It was uh, obvious from the fact that on um, Friday, the United States vetoed a UN uh, Security Council resolution that sought an immediate ceasefire, the Americans said, no, we're not supporting this, we're vetoing this motion because if there is a ceasefire now, Hamas would remain a threat. And Israel's declared goal of eliminating Hamas to ensure that it is no longer a threat is a goal that we endorse. Um, We've also heard lots and lots of reporting about ostensible deadlines and what Secretary of State Blinken said or didn't say in in the war cabinet just a few days ago when he was here. Uh, We keep hearing reports that behind the scenes, the United States has given Israel a deadline, at least for the intensive level of ground operation and air force uh, um, fighting going on now. And then you hear publicly um, uh, American spokespeople saying, no, there is no deadline. Uh, again, because there is the, sh- the the goal that we endorse of destroying Hamas. Um, at the same time, obviously, there is friction, um, not therefore with the declared goal, but with aspects of how Israel has gone about pursuing it. And this we have heard publicly. We heard uh, Secretary of State Blinken saying um, really very 
harsh language uh, at his press conference uh, um, about 10 days ago when he was visiting Israel, where he said there cannot be a repeat in southern Gaza of the massive loss of civilian life that was the case in northern Gaza. Uh, there's also been lots of uh, pressure by the United States on Israel um, to increase the flow of humanitarian aid to um, to allow more fuel into Gaza. Lots of Israeli reservations about this, in part because the more that Gaza is sustained, I suppose, would be one way that some Israeli officials would put it, the harder it is going to be to defeat Hamas. You know, you're, put, you're sending in fuel because you want to avoid humanitarian disaster, you want uh, sewage systems to operate and water systems to operate at the same time, you know, and by the way, some Gazans uh, seem to be saying this, that some, or, or maybe much, or maybe most, or maybe all, I don't know, uh, of, of, uh, of fuel and other aspects of aid are going straight to Hamas, are being taken by Hamas. Um, so uh, the complexities there. Uh, the, America, the American position has been that if you don't ensure um, sufficient humanitarian aid, you're going to create a situation in which the war's not. You're, you're going to have to stop the war because there will be outbreaks of disease and worse, uh, and, and so on. And therefore, when we're pushing you on this, we're pushing you on this in your own interest. But there are Israeli analysts who, you know, people with immense military experience who I've known for many, many years who would argue that this whole approach is wrong and Israel should not have allowed any fuel or humanitarian aid into Gaza unless or until the hostages were released. And that was the best leverage that Israel had and it chose not to use it. And counter arguments that say, you know, it's all very well to take that hardline position we would not have been able to uh, continue to fight this war. The United States would not have backed us, uh, and and uh, Hamas doesn't care about uh, outbreaks of disease in Gaza, and therefore you would have had uh, non-combatants uh, paying more of the price of Hamas's intransigence, but you would be blamed for it. So again, you know, it's very, very complicated. You mentioned, of course, that the U.S. vetoed the U.N. resolution, but the U.K. abstained. Did that surprise you at all? You mean as an ex-Brit who would have expected the the, the United Kingdom to veto? Um, I'm not. I wasn't terribly surprised. I think if you if you listen to what the British have been saying, they they feel that they've been quite um, empathetic to Israel in that they abstained. The other 13 members of the Security Council all voted for that resolution, which would have left much of Hamas still standing, uh, and certainly would not have eliminated Hamas from Gaza at this stage. Uh, but the way the Brits are telling it, you know, how could we support a resolution like this, which doesn't condemn Hamas for the October the 7th slaughter, uh, uh, and so on. So I think that... Um, that uh, the British government would would argue that unlike everybody else um, except the Americans, they were they were fairly steadfast. I'm not sure um, that Israel sees it in that way. And just one one more thing that we should get to complicating this picture is, and we, and I don't want to focus on it too much, but it's a factor. Um, is the question of internal Israeli politics? I think the United States, when it is. Um, in some friction with the Netanyahu government. Part of that is the sense that Netanyahu is also looking to his political base and wants to be seen as being tough uh, on issues, including humanitarian issues uh, in Gaza, the minimal, I think, you know, when he, when he acknowledged that Israel was going to allow um, more fuel into Gaza, he's spoken about the minimal level of humanitarian aid, the minimal uh, amounts of fuel. Um, 
you know, it's a complication. This is this is a government, remember, in Israel, a pre-war government that was quite openly, uh, certainly ministers in that government, incredibly hostile to and critical of the United States. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, in both directions, there's a, a sense in some parts of the Netanyahu government that the Americans are not, um, you know, are, are supporting Israel, but are certainly not... Um, particularly interested in supporting this particular government. And I think there's a strong sense uh, in the United States that they're dealing with an Israel led by a, a prime minister who is battling um, for his political life and will be doing so once the war is over. It's complicating. Uh, it's a complicating factor. And, you know, there are, there are allegations that are being made that, I, that I've, I've heard being made in Israel by people, by, by groups and people who are quite hostile to Netanyahu that... Um, is is he capable of um, shaping the way the war proceeds in ways that he believes would be helpful for him? Um, or is all of his interest only in ensuring that Israel uh, prosecutes this war as effectively as possible? You know, people are asking those questions and it would be uh, um, disingenuous not to acknowledge that. Um, the way that the leadership tells it, the focus is on the war and winning the war and destroying Hamas and getting the hostages uh, uh, back and so on. Uh, but remember, Netanyahu added a third aim to the war, which is ensuring that the PA, um, at least in this iteration, not have any role in a post-war Gaza. That too is a, is, uh, is a conflict with the United States, which sees a revitalized PA uh, playing a significant role in post-war Gaza. There are nuances, even in what I said, that mean that that is not necessarily a direct conflict. Uh, but again, it's an area of friction between the Netanyahu government and the, and the Biden administration. Okay, we're going to go to a short break and then continue our discussion. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a four by four. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. You mentioned that you listened to Tzachi Negbi yesterday. Uh, what else did he have to say, including especially what's happening in the north with Hezbollah? Yeah, well, part of the answer there comes back to a bit of your question from before that I didn't answer yet, which is on timelines. Um, so we can move from, you know, the, the timeline of this conflict. We don't have a definitive answer. We certainly anticipate at the very least several weeks of intensive fighting. And after that, uh, many months of an ongoing, significant, hugely significant major Israeli presence in Gaza uh, it, at, a, at a stage where, where the Israeli military planners would like to think they will be dealing with pockets of resistance rather than a full-fledged conflict with a still uh, um, efficient and capable Hamas. 
but after um, the main fighting is done in Gaza, what Zahir Anegbi, the national security advisor, said last night, or intimated last night, was that there is there are things to be done on the northern border. And broadly speaking, what he said was that we know that in the same way that the residents of communities near Gaza are not going to easily come back unless or until they feel they can sleep safely in their beds because Hamas is no longer a threat, the same applies on the northern border, where I think the figure is something like 60,000 Israelis have um, been told to and have evacuated communities near the northern border, they're not going to go back um, unless or until Hezbollah uh, is not capable of doing what Hamas did. And making that even more grave is the fact that Hamas is, uh, that Hezbollah is more potent than Hamas. Um, what Hanegbi said, I mean, he said lots of interesting things because he can be quite um, um, candid, which is, um, uh, I think, often a, a very good thing. Uh, he, he, he was asked, you know, you've got Hezbollah across the border. It's got incredible missile capabilities. Um, what are we going to do about this? And he said there are lots of countries that have uh, very powerful missile capabilities. Uh, Hezbollah certainly has incredible strength. Um, but he spoke of uh, Iran, Iraq and Syria, um, all of which have very uh, um, well, varying degrees of missile capabilities pointed at Israel. And he said we don't invade them. Um, but Hezbollah, not only the missiles, he said, but also in the wake of October the 7th, we need to internalize. They have a force on the border uh, that has said it wants to, uh, unlike Hamas, which said it didn't and fooled Israel, uh, un unthinkably, as we've stressed so many times. But Hezbollah said, yeah, we intend to invade the Galilee and we want to get across the border and, and take over parts of northern Israel. Um, after October the 7th, Hanegbi said, we can't countenance that threat any longer. This cannot be the case at the end of the fighting. Hezbollah has to not be capable of, of within minutes getting across the border potentially. And therefore, he said, uh, one way or another, Hezbollah is going to have to be pushed well back from the border and uh, the, the provisions of uh, the resolution that ended the 2006 second Israel-Lebanon war need to be implemented. Now, he said, it would be good if we could do this diplomatically through negotiation. I don't believe that's possible, in which case the only alternative would be war. So, that's a very long answer to your question, but what, it, what he indicated is that when the fighting in Gaza has, or the situation in Gaza has reached uh, a place where Israel feels it can divert more attention to the northern border, we're going to see uh, hostilities between Israel and Hezbollah, a very, very potent force, because Israel cannot allow things to carry on where Hezbollah is concerned in the way that they were until October the 7th. So if international support has been so fickle for the Gaza ground operation after a massacre of 1,200 citizens, dozens taken hostage, un unspeakable horrors visited on other people, how do you think that the international diplomatic spheres or international heads of state will, will even support for a minute some kind of invasion of Lebanon? First of all, I don't know what exactly Israel has in mind. It's it's kind of fairly public knowledge that um, the defense minister and maybe the um, military echelons as well wanted to tackle Hezbollah before Hamas, which is astonishing when you think about it, given that um, 1,200 people had just been slaughtered uh, and given what, what Israel is trying to do in Gaza. And it underlines how seriously 
um, the defense minister and, and I think the defense establishment takes the threat posed by Hezbollah. Um, they, will, they will prepare, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's a military doctrine, I understand, that says if you're going to fight on two fronts, uh, tackle the more potent threat first. And I think that was the, the thinking there from the defense minister's perspective. Um, Israel would have done it, um, whatever the international um, stance. And remember, whatever the consequences for Israel, which I think is a, is a, is a much um, more immediate and uh, um, national concern, if Israel is tackling Hezbollah, Hezbollah has uh, a missile capability that Israel will not easily be able to counter. Um, and there would be tremendous uh, damage done throughout Israel. I think that would be the, the assessment of anyone um, in the military uh, uh, planning department. And nonetheless, this is something that the National Security Advisor of Israel has said is l- likely to happen. So international consequence, the consequence for Israel itself, these are factors that apparently will not deter Israel from trying to alleviate the threat because the threat posed by Hezbollah is so acute. Again, it's it's life after October the 7th. What may have been dubiously tolerated until October the 7th in in the assessment that we're hearing is no longer tenable. Cannot have a huge terrorist army on our northern border vowing to do terrible things to us when we've seen what a smaller terrorist army was able to do on the south. Okay, we've been going on quite a long time. And so I just want to close with how you assess the national mood in light of all of this very dire things that we've been discussing. I think that, you know, the national mood is still one and it will be, you know, potentially forever in one way or another, a consequence of everything that happened on October the 7th. We, we still, um, and, and like I say, will be a long time, if ever, uh, um, have not gotten over what happened on October 7th in terms of the unfathomable failure to read writing that couldn't have been clearer on the wall and the actual direct consequence. I mean, 1,200 people were killed on October the 7th. We are, we are, our attention is drawn to human interest stories from among the hostages. There are 1,200 um, lives that, that were snuffed out uh, uh, in those hours of October the 7th. And Israel has really not mourned or internalized the full horror of everything that happened that day yet. And what it says also, not just about political leadership, which is, which is to some extent a sort of familiar and convenient avenue for blame, but the military echelons who have no partisan interest in thinking well or ill of, of this or that enemy and who, who failed so utterly. Uh, and I think the, you know, the national mood is still, a lot of it is still there. Um, and I think in terms of support for the, for the military offensive in Gaza, because of the horror of October the 7th, uh, and never mind the fact that much of the international community doesn't seem to want to remember that anymore uh, and doesn't seem to want to grapple. And it's complicated with what do you do with Gaza, which, is, which has a terrorist force as its government, a terrorist force that is interested in death, that abuses its own people to wreak death here. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you tackle that? How do you tackle that without causing widespread loss of life in Gaza? Again, against a government there that wants you to cause widespread loss of life in Gaza and that abuses Gaza civilians, some of whom must be uh, empathetic to its goals, others of whom 
are, are, are not. This is complicated. And the international community may not want to look at that, may want to say, well, Israel is just, you know, using too much force and causing needless destruction. Uh, there are Israelis who are very concerned about what is happening in Gaza, but I think uh, overwhelmingly do not believe that the army is causing arbitrary harm or, or being capricious in how it's pursuing this conflict. And overwhelmingly, I think Israelis believe that this is a war whose declared aims have to be realized. In other words, the two declared aims that Hamas can no longer govern and, and, and constitute a threat to Israel and that everything must be done to get the hostages back. Uh, and we've talked about loss of life. You know, people are dying here. And this is, again, as I've written so many times, and as we all know, this is a people's army. It's not some professional force who've signed up knowing that they're choosing uh, to potentially put their lives at risk as a sort of professional calling. These are people, by and large, either doing their mandatory service or called in as reservists. Um, and their lives are on the line here. And the support for this, uh, for this campaign um, is almost universal, I would say. David, thank you so much for all of this. Thank you. I just want to say one thing. I mean, this was, you know, all of these conversations that we have are complicated and nuanced, uh, and this one especially. And it may be that I misassess and, and make, make errors in, in trying to assess it, but this was me trying to answer those big questions as accurately as, and as honestly as, as I can, and, uh, and I hope that, uh, that that's useful. I know I learned a lot. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Pod Waves. If you have any questions or comments about this or other episodes, please drop an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom.